I think it's it's interesting if I think of my own interests um, in art and observing and reading and going to plays and dance and all this stuff. I have always liked it if the narrative is a little off. Like I can feel it better. It feels mm-hmm. just baked into who I am. Like I somehow emotionally can access the art better if it's not straightforward. And that's something about the straightforward storytelling I like and appreciate, but it doesn't move me in the same way. And But what was interesting is because fiction, I hadn't really felt like there was space for that in fiction. So I was trying to write more straightforward fiction and it wasn't really working. And it was only when I allowed myself to sort of use that move and feel like I can move outside of realism into something else or that at any moment the fiction writer can really go anywhere if it feels felt and kind of like a natural movement inside Mm -hmm. the story you can move forward in time you can go inside a person you can go outside a person you can jump into a new character like you can really do anything as long as it feels like it naturally moves there and that was like incredibly freeing You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on Amy Margot Bender. The Devourings. The ogre's wife was a good woman. She was not an ogre, but she was ugly by human standards, and she had married the ogre because he was strong and productive, and together they had made six small ogre children. The children all took after their father. She had not expected otherwise. One look at his giant teeth, height, and huge features, and she knew his genes had to be dominant. Years earlier, she had left her own village by choice, traveling up and over the green and rising hills in search of a life for herself. And when she had met the ogre in the tavern, him stretched along the entire side wall, his voice scratched from cigar smoke, she thought she might give the alternate world a chance. Everyone in her hometown knew of the ogres living up on Cloud Hill like that with their magical boots and that hen. With also, she wondered, a range of appetites? Later that night at his home, the ogre had been surprised at her willingness to take off her clothes since he'd been rumored to eat people for dinner. As she unlaced her blouse, he touched fingertips to her trembling bare shoulders and explained in his low gravel that he only ate human beings he did not know. I know your name now, he murmured. I know your travels. You're safe. Her eyes were closed, and when she revealed her breasts, he sighed. They were sculpted by a different artist, he whispered to her, with a subtler tool. His desire was too much for her at first, overwhelming, but she soon grew to love him and his body, its giant harshness, its gentle gruffness with her. Next to him, she felt herself so delicate. At school, she had been the roughest skinned, the one with the drooping features, the one no one could ever imagine that way, in a bed. She did not care about not being pretty, but she wanted to be seen as a future woman, as one who could participate, and no high school boy could take that leap. The ogre, however, found her nothing short of revelatory, and the first time he entered her, they both shouted with joy. One evening, after many years of contented marriage, the children tucked in their bed, asleep, snoring faintly, wearing hammered gold crowns with their nightshirts because their father wanted them to feel like royal ogres in their dreams, a human girl and her siblings knocked on the door, frightened. 
they were lost and the ogre was out at the tavern and the ogre's wife opened up and there they were, a group of six live human kids with bright hair and red felt hats and snapping eyes, reminding her so sweetly of her long-ago nieces and nephews. The ogre's wife disliked firmly only one aspect of her husband, his interest in eating the children of humans. It could have been me, she told him once in bed while he twirled and twisted her hair over his fingers. She could not bear to turn the children into the ogre-filled night, so she hustled them inside, and in a fierce whisper told them they could hide in the same giant bed as her own children, but not to make a sound, not a peep. When the ogre came home late, he smelled them, of course. How could she have imagined he would not smell them? She was half asleep, twisted in the sheets, and hoped desperately that he would just crash out on the sofa in drunkenness. What she did not know was that earlier in the night, the smart little girl leader of the human group had swapped their six red felt hats with the six golden crowns on the heads of the deep sleeping ogre children. And when the ogre cackled hungrily, bumbling around the house, hunting for the source of the scent, he, of poor eyesight, of booziness, of delirium, ended up eating all his own children due to the swapping of those hats. In the early morning, the human children ran off terrified, giggling. We skip ahead five years because five years were full of nothing but searing pain. Five years of lying in the bed, unable to move, slogging up to do the basic functioning needed to hold things together, then back to bed. Five years of scathing bitterness at ogres and also at humans, at where she came from and the worry that had led her to open the door. I should have let him eat them first thing, she said, weeping into the down of her pillow though she felt sick any time she had ever gotten the hint that her husband had eaten a child. But her own. There were two that she mourned the most, much as she hated to admit it to herself. But she had loved Lorraine and Stilford best, the two most complex-looking ogre faces who had emerged post-utero like gnarled wood knots and who had turned out to be all sweetness in nature. How they had loved their human mother, they nestled on her lap and nudged their big heads onto her shoulders. They were gentle during the breastfeeding, unlike their siblings. Ogres grew teeth early, and she had to stop feeding most of them, or they would have ripped off her nipple, truly. She many times ran to the bathroom with blood streaming from her breasts from a careless slash, a little ogre child happily lapping up the red drops on the sofa. To those, she gave formula. But she was too soft-hearted to decide for all of them. For each new child, she risked her breast, and Lorraine and Stilford had been different, angled their teeth just so, and suckled like little human babies, and perhaps held within themselves some of her human genes that knew not to tear at the gentleness offered. Now they were dead, digested in the system of their father, who had been so angry he split a bone out of his neck while overclenching his jaw, and had to go to the hospital where he broke four beds and injured a nurse. He was angrier than ever these days, and their marriage and its focus and tenderness had faded. His favorite had been Lutter, the super-ogre demon child who was so kinetic she rarely saw him still and who had scraped the walls into shreds with his nails and twice tried to swallow his mother whole. She had let him train with her husband only, and why Lutter, even in his sleep, had let himself be eaten could only have been due to the deep, dreamy trust he felt of the smell of the mouth he was entering, a mouth he knew from its firm position over his shoulder, telling him instructions on how to rip through cartilage and sinew, and an inability, due to that core of trust, to imagine his fate could end this way. 
After enough time had passed, she was able to get out of bed for hours at a time. She could go to town and engage in minutes of small talk. She could sit outside on the porch and watch leaves twist on the birch trees. She could read a short article in the newsletter. On this day, a day of change, she cleaned the house top to floor using swaths of cloth that grew dark with dirt and dust. She swept tumbleweeds of lint out the front door and poured scrubbing detergent into all the sinks to scour the vast yellowing basins. At the market, she bought root vegetables by the dozen and chickens and sausages. She stuffed the chickens and made a stew and fed her husband who came home ragged from his work climbing mountainsides to look for caves packed with jewels and gifts like the magical harp that that thief Jack had stolen from his brother years ago. We're pillaged constantly, said the ogre, laying his loot in a sparkling heap by the door. And they fear us? He kissed her on the ear and sat down to roll a cigar out of crisp brown paper and a fist-sized wad of tobacco. Good stew, human, he said after dinner. Please don't call me that, she said for the hundredth time. That's right, he said, patting his belly. I'm sorry. Love that sausage. Delicious. He lit the cigar and inhaled deeply. She wiped the globs of leftover chicken off the dining room table with a sponge. While he mumbled to himself, digesting, sleepy, she filled the pots with soap and water to soak and ate a little bowl of the chicken stew behind the counter. She rarely ate at the same table as her husband anymore as she now feared him during mealtimes. Couldn't stand to watch him slurp up animals with that vigor and those grinding, pointed teeth. Husband, she said, putting her bowl aside. She walked out from behind the counter. I've decided I need to go on a trip, she said. The ogre was finishing his fourth mug of wine. He liked the darkest wine, the red, almost black. Go where, he said, wiping his mouth. To see your family? She shook her head. Her family lived below in the people village, and the last time she'd been home, before the devouring, everyone had lectured her on ogres and complicity and betrayal. She'd waved them off. He's a good man, she had said. She had not dared show pictures of her children. I'd like to see something pretty, she said. Maybe a lake? There's a river that's supposed to be nice a few valleys over, he said, exhaling bracelets of smoke to the rafters. Okay, she said, a river. I could go with you, he said, turning a giant brown eye to hers. His eye like a pool, hers could swim inside. A mucky pool. No, she told him. I need to do this alone. He nodded. He understood. They each coped in their own way. He had women on the side, ogre women. Everyone knew. Maybe she didn't know, but probably. After all, although being with a human was the ultimate in showing off both self-control and status, sometimes a man just wanted a woman like himself. There were no prostitutes in the ogre village as it was a barter economy and females chose males with equal discernment, but there were a couple who liked this particular ogre and every few months he'd make a little visit as a way to honor where he came from. It's for my mother, he told his ogre woman once, and she'd laughed and laughed, nude and mottled and calm, sprawled over a mattress, one arm crossing loosely over her forehead. The ogre helped his wife pack up. He buttoned up her bag and told her he would miss her, which was true. From his plunder, he gave her a magic cloak that would turn her into the color of the dappled light that shot through foliage and also a cake that would become more cake once she'd eaten half. He kissed her forehead roughly and she melted a little under his arms. Do you know how long you'll be? He asked. I don't know, she said. 
Okay, he said, I'll be here. They spent the night almost close, her forehead pressed against his wall of tricep. Come morning, she walked through the door and into the fields of glistening green. What marriage could recover? She did not plan on ever returning. The ogre wasn't sure, but he thought it was unlikely. He was not insensitive, despite all suspicions. The day she left, he skipped work and went to the tavern for lunch and drank 95 beers. You're a machine, the other ogre said, admiringly, as he slammed down another stein. Foam made an old man's beard around his mouth, and he burped in an echo that trembled the hillsides. She felt it, his wife, now miles away, following a winding path up and over light rolling hills covered in sage and dandelion fields, and one meadow of sunflowers swaying in the daylight. She walked and walked until dusk, trying to collect distance under her feet, and then she camped out under a shady elm with her checkered cloth. She unpacked some almonds and dried cherries, and she also ate the cake, which would let itself diminish to half, and then, under her bare eyes, build itself back up out of nothing, out of air, until it was a full cake again. She was grateful for it, but somehow it also bothered her. Finish, cake, she said, tearing off half, watching it rebuild. Finish! She tore off more than half, the whole, but the cake was unstoppable. Plus, she needed it. What, she was going to trap birds and roast them over a fire? She was a woman who shopped at a market with a wheeled cart and used honey lavender soap. She drank from her water mug and refilled it at a spring at the edge of the meadow, and before she fell asleep, she sprinkled the remaining cake crumbs around her cloth. In the morning, she awoke surrounded by expectant-looking crows. Enough, she said, shaking the cloth as they tottered away. Really, she could have spent the rest of her life just sitting there and feeding those crows and herself with the cake. But she wanted to reach the river. When she heard a clip-clopping sound, she put on the cloak so that she looked like the dappled sunlight beneath the elm, a particularly glorious sunlit area that did not correspond to the rules of sun location in the sky, but who would notice that except a particularly astute observer of shadows? This was just a human horseman riding along an ogre country, looking to find some treasure like his comrades who had come up here and survived. She watched him, his handsomeness, his vanity and sureness, his sculpted hair and cheeks, his strong hands, his proud red jacket, and she was reminded again why the ogres had attracted her and why she had loved young Stilford so, his wet brown eyes searching out hers, those sharp, smiling, crooked teeth. The ogres knew they were ugly, and in that they were decent. They did not ever think they could be like this man, she thought, as he galloped off, tossing his head with pleasure. He ducked and rose over hills, and she saw it coming before he did, saw the ogre who ran the corner store just out on a pleasant walk in his seven-league boots rounding the corner, and surprise, what a gift! And the man, too late, raising his gun and landing a shot on the ogre's shoulder, which was nothing to an ogre, nothing a little mending at night wouldn't do, a little digging with a fork into flesh to expunge a bullet. And she watched in her cloak as the man was plucked from his horse and eaten whole. It was a horrible sight, one she had tried not to see for most of her wedded life. But on that day, she found it almost comforting, just to see it. Not comforting to see pain and death, but just to see what she could not let herself imagine and therefore ruled her. She wept quietly under the tree as the ogre chewed. Then he walked off, rubbing his belly in his boots, a little scrap of red cloth sticking out of his mouth until he reached out a tongue and licked it in, just like a human might do with a bit of jam. The horse had run off, but it circled back after the ogre left, pacing in the field and settling down, and after her shaking subsided, 
She walked over to where it was grazing. A couple of hours had passed and the horse seemed focused on the clover. After all, the eating had been brief and the man had had barely time to scream and ogres were just about food, not about power play or torture. They were just endlessly large and hungry beings. She mounted the horse and rode lazily along, digging around in the thick leather packs on the side where she found some snacks, turkey jerky that she used to love, made in the village, and some peaches, a rare delicacy for her as ogres could care less about peaches. And the fragrance consumed her mouth like eating perfume, like kisses of nectar. She found a letter from a wife using a royal blue quill pen, wishing the man well. It was all awful, she thought, tossing the peach stone onto the green hillside where it wedged against a rock near some bees, happy bees. She patted the horse's neck. Now she and the woman had something in common. Though loss did not pass from one person to another like a baton, it just formed a bigger and bigger pool of carriers. And, she thought, scratching the coarseness of the horse's mane, it did not leave once lodged, did it, simply changed form and asked repeatedly for attention and care, as each year revealed a new knot to cry out and consider. Smaller, sure, but never gone. Stilford, she thought to herself as the sun grew high in the sky, my sweet Stilford with his dirt art, my funny Lorraine who danced to the lute so earnestly, out of my body these beautiful monsters. It was ridiculous at times how many tears one body could produce. A few hours into the afternoon, after napping on the horse who was eating clover in the inverted bell of a valley, the sound of trumpets awoke the woman. She jerked awake, recalling the sound from her childhood when trumpets were the way news was delivered, and sure enough, across the field emerged a troop of human men and women on horseback, some walking, two trumpeting, one waving a bright red flag. From what she could recall, a bright red flag meant war. Ho, woman, called the strapping man at the lead, and she did not have time to put on her cloak, and even if so, they'd take her horse, and she liked having the horse. They trotted over a whole mess of people, and she hadn't looked at so many human faces together in years. How refined they were, how tiny and delicate, those dot nostrils, their hairless hands. Are you lost? the headman asked, not unkindly. He wore a helmet wrought with silver swirled markings on the sides that seemed to speak of royalty. No, she said, thank you. I'm on my way to the river. This is ogre territory, said the man sitting straighter. You're not safe. He turned to the others, beckoning them closer. No, no, she said, waving him off. It's fine. I'm skilled at hiding. I've been living in this territory for years. Ho, he said, digging his hands into this horse's mane. Years and survived? You must help us then. We sent out a scout earlier to look for mines, and we have not heard back. Did you see anyone? Of course, one careful look at the horse and all would be revealed, but the man was very focused on her face, as if he had been trained in it. No, she said. You saw no danger, said the man. Nothing but crows, she said. Ogres eat people, said the man, leaning in. To her annoyance, her eyes thickened with tears. Ah, you've seen something? She shook her head, tucking her hands under her saddle and feeling the horse's warm coat beneath her, the large and living backside. No, she said. I just heard a story once of someone getting eaten, and I found it sad. The tears tracked her cheeks. The man nodded. They all had their own stories. Our sentry is a good man, the man said, and he said he'd contact us immediately via light signaling with use of the sun and his mirror, and we have not seen a thing. Ah! Is that his horse? 
he glanced down and saw the packs. She had in her lap some of the turkey jerky that she'd been eating earlier. Oh, I don't know, she said. She widened her eyes. Is it? I was just walking and came upon this horse and needed a rest hours ago. It did not have an owner. The man's brow furrowed. The horse alone, hours ago? Alone, she said. He consulted with the short man next to him on a taller horse, making them even. You'll have to come with us, the main man said. Oh, no, she said, slipping the turkey jerky into a pocket. I'll walk. I'll give you his horse. I didn't realize it belonged to anyone recently. I thought it had been wild for a while. No, said the man firmly. We need you to come with us. He gave a nod to his short man who began to dismount. The woman left off her horse and backed into the meadow. The afternoon sun filtered through pine needles on high fir trees to the side, and with a quick move she had the cloak out of her bag and on and had turned into light and shadow. Where'd she go? said the short man. Which? said the first. The trumpets raised and blared. The woman crept quietly to a corner of the meadow. Had any one of them been attuned to light, they would have seen one patch of splattered sun shapes moving along in a way that did not correspond to the breeze. But they were not. They were preoccupied with what had happened. They had liked their handsome, courageous scout. They quickly assimilated the man's packs and letters into their leagues and put a child who'd been previously riding with his mother onto the horse and the two lead men swore and the woman watched silently from her spot in the meadow as they moved in a clump over the hills. She stayed in the meadow in the cloak for hours and the sun went down and lit the grasses with orange light and she wondered about her husband who was likely going to see one of his women on the side. Although it made her cringe inside, a fist in her stomach, there was also a distant relief in it, in people just doing what they needed to do. She found comfort in the way the grasses swayed and murmured, and at dinner time, in a little whisper, she asked the cake to change flavor, and magic cake that it was, it shifted from vanilla pound to chocolate bunt, and she ate it with pleasure, plus some more almonds she had in her pocket and the remaining turkey jerky. Water from the spring. The moon rose in a crescent and crickets rubbed their wings together and in the far distance now and again she could hear the shining bleats of the bugles and trumpets. In the morning she walked on. She could smell the river now, the heavy moisture, the damper grasses under her feet. The trumpets had grown fainter and she imagined they were returning home to arm up and come back to try to defeat the ogres with guns and bayonets. Maybe they will, she thought vaguely, though the ogres had magic and bigness on their side and the humans had a hubris ogres did not. Ogres bumbled and erred, but their weaknesses were not hidden, and this helped them in the long run. She ate her lunch, more dried cherries, and then took the cake out of her bag. Something about it still bothered her. I need to fight for my life a little harder than this, she told it. It was now a chocolate chip cake, and she felt bad for it, this cake so willing to change and please her with no other beings around who could speak to it and enjoy it. But she ate a small portion and then wrapped it in a checkered napkin and tucked it in the branched fork of a sturdy oak. Here, cake, she told it, patting the napkin. You are to have your own adventure now. No matter what happens, you can grow again. As she said it, as she stooped to shoulder her bag, she understood why she could not tolerate being around a cake that survived so repeatedly, and she stood, bowed at the branch, and walked away. Finding food became much harder then. She rooted for berries, having learned years ago from her husband what was edible, but more times than not, the berries were bad. 
She ate a handful of sour ones in the afternoon and dug up some old peanuts and a beet. Dirt filled the cracks in her hands. She found a strong stick and rubbed the end to a point with the paring knife she'd brought in her sack, and when she finally reached the river, dark blue, racing, stone dribbled. After refilling her water, ogre country water was always drinkable, something to do with the deep reserves replenished by the clouds. She saw a quick orange fish in the current and crouched down and after dozens of tries, speared it. The fish flapped on her stick and she knelt and prayed a thank you. She'd only seen a fire built in front of her a few times, but she was able to wrangle together some sticks and fur needles and with the matches she had in her pack managed to get enough going to scorch the cleaned fish, though she missed many of the bones and picked them from her teeth in thin pullings. She let the fish guts molder in the grasses for another animal. Everything would get eaten in some way or another. She slept that night wearing the cloak, a bright spot of dapple in the darkness. Soon into her sleep, she woke at the sound of rustling and caught a bear cub next to her licking up the fish guts and eyeing her sunspot curiously. She removed the cloak and it scampered away. The next morning, she wrapped up the cloak and left it in another tree's branches. She did not want help from magic. She did not want any more handouts. She grew rugged and wiry in the field, spearing fish, using up the last of her matches, but not until she was sure she had figured out how to make a fire on her own, which sometimes took over an hour. Her legs turned leaner and tanner, and she squatted and watched the clouds in the river and felt her sense of internal time shifting. We adapt, she told herself repeatedly. This is what they mean by adaptable. The men rose up from the village with their spears and guns, and when she saw the glints of red and the banners of war, she climbed a high tree and watched from a distance as the human forces with shining weaponry and brass charged into ogre territory, into the thatched huts and the rickety tavern and the ogre game field full of nets and balls woven from goat hide. She watched again as the ogres ate the men whole. They could eat and eat. She watched the ogres fall from the expert weaponry and the sight of a fallen ogre enraged the other ogres and invigorated the remaining men so the last phase was particularly bloody. Casualties were tossed off an embankment on Cloud Hill and far below people cried out and ran from the falling bodies. On one of the days, she spotted her husband from the height of her best scouting tree near the thickest part of the river where she'd set up a little daily life for herself that included hours of watching insects move grasses around or feeling the wind shift over her skin. Her husband, who had aged, she could see it in his limp. She missed him. She felt from his limp that he missed her. She had taken good care of him. He had been her one and only love. She watched as he swiped at the humans with swinging arms and ate two and then stumbled off and could not continue. The humans shot guns in his direction, but he just swatted bullets like sport, and the humans were radically outnumbered by that point, and her ogre was one of the biggest. He limped further away and then twisted and turned, and his body moved in a way that she'd never seen before, an uncomfortable jerking, an insistent movement from feet up to mouth, and he vomited up human, legs and arms and a head tumbled straight out of him. It was unchewed, the body. It was just parts and parcels of humanness, and the body lay there in the grass, glazed in a layer of spit and acid. Everyone stopped for a second, seeing that. The man, who had not been chewed, but had been split into parts, and was, of course, dead. The ogres held still, sweating, staring. The ogres had never seen an ogre throw anything up in their lives. They were nothing if not able digesters, and they shuddered at the sight of it. 
On light feet, the woman crept closer. She ran through the grasses and leapt into another tree. The humans were muttering amongst themselves because although they had seen bodies eaten, it was something else to see a body re-emerge. The man's parts were now moldering in the grass, perhaps for the same bear cub. When she was close enough, at a high perch, she found she could recognize the man. An uncle of hers, a distant uncle, her mother's eldest brother. His twisted hand, his nose, that tweaked soldier and distinctive jaw. She clung to the branch and thought perhaps her husband had thrown up the man because the taste had reminded him of his own children. Perhaps he had banged up against memory through an inexplicable familiarity. He had never told her he was sad. He had never expressed true regret. They had, in fact, never really talked about it. How to talk about it? How to blame him, or could he blame her? Weren't they both to blame for it, and also blameless? Who were the little human children who had escaped? And where were they now? The remaining ogre staggered off and the remaining humans went to surround her dead uncle parts. It was a truce moment. There had been enough death and the ogres were not going to be vanquished and the remaining humans did not want to be eaten. So they put the uncle's body into burlap bags and began the slow march home. Her ogre sank to the grasses on his knees and hung his head. He stayed there for hours, wilted, hunched, and from her perch in the tree, she sent him love. She made her love into a piece of the wind formed from the air in her and placed on the air outside her and sent it to him, even though it would be too diffuse by the time it got there. Still, even the bear cub felt it, trotting over to whatever remaining organ bits he could find, lifting up his nose to smell the new hint of freshness in the evening air. The cake at first, had remained in the tree, lodged in the branch nook of the old oak where she'd left it. But various birds found it in a few short days. They could smell its bready sweetness from yards away, and they pecked so hard at the napkin that the cake fell from the nook and rolled out of the linen. On the ground, the birds pecked it into nothing. It replenished. They pecked. It replenished. The cake wanted to satisfy the birds, so it made itself into a seeded type, and the birds went at it with new vigor. The cake replenished. The birds were so full they hopped off wobbling, but they returned with eagerness in the morning and the next morning, and the birds that lived near the oak tree became fat and listless. They could hardly fly. All they did all day long was peck at the cake. The cake had grown old. It had been made so many years ago, and it had been so many cakes in its time. I will never die, thought the cake to itself, in even simpler terms as cakes did not have sophisticated use of language. On her walk back, the woman saw it on the ground. She recognized her napkin, checked blue against the dirt. She was heading home. She was not sure if she could really return or how to do it, but she wanted to try. She missed her husband, and the sight of him throwing up her uncle had filled her with a sore and tender love. There was the cake, in seated form now, and she felt sorry for it. With her pointed stick, she dug a hole in the ground. Now, dear cake, she said, gently bearing it, patting the dirt, at least you can rest. At least you will not be endlessly pecked and diminished. The birds found it in a day. A cake like that? Let that kind of thing go? They thought not. They scrabbled in the dirt and dragged it out with their beaks. They had missed it for that missing day. They pecked with unusual ardor. 
A few worms had already attached to its bottom side and were eating it too, and the cake had formed its backside into a kind of dirt cake and its front into seed, and it would replenish itself according to the ratio of its eaters. It went on like this for a while, and a few of the birds died early from overeating and lack of flight. New birds came and went. Same with the worms. The woman returned to her house and her husband opened the door, widening it when he saw it was her, and they sat at the kitchen table. It did not feel wrong. She got up and took her items out of her dirty bag and piled them into the sink for laundry. That moment, a few days later when their arms touched over by the guest room, they ate their stew bowls together. They walked formally into the living room, sat on a sofa, and stumbled through a conversation. At night, she climbed onto his chest to sleep, and he held her in place like a belt. Later, they took a few trips to a waterfall and a glacier and befriended an ogre who ran a school. After many years, the woman died of natural causes, and a few years after that, the ogre died. Eventually, his mistresses died. Down on the ground in the people village over decades, the war, men and women died. The human girl who had escaped her early death died across the land, over by the ocean, in her shack of blue bowls and rocking chairs. The witch who had originally made the cake and made up the spell and given it as a gift to her beloved ogre friend died. The cake went on and on. Time passed and the climate shifted. The trees and grasses faded and the land grew dry. Birds stopped flying overhead. Reptiles ate the cake, but eventually died out. Worms dried into dust. A quarter mile away, the magic cloak had stayed stuffed in its tree, hidden from view over many, many years. Some wind had nudged it into open air, and now, half tucked in the broken branches of the dead tree trunk, was a shining, bright, coat-shaped area of dappled light through foliage. It showed dapple long after the sun had stopped shining through any leaves, because there were no more leaves. Neither could move, but the cake felt a sense of the presence of the cloak, and thought it might be a new eater coming to find the cake, and the cake always wanting to please, the cake who had found a way to survive its endlessness by recreating its role over and over again, tried to figure out in its cake way what this light-dappled object might want to eat. So it became darkness, a cake of darkness. It did not have to be human food. It did not have to be digestible through a familiar tract. It lay there on the dirt waiting, a shimmering cake of darkness. Through time and wind and earthquakes and chance, at last the cloak fell out of the tree and blew across the land and happened upon the cake where it ate its darkness and extinguished its own dappled light. The cloak disappeared into night and was not seen again as it was only a piece of coat-shaped darkness now and could no longer be spotted so easily had there been any eyes left to see it. It floated and joined with nowhere. Darkness was overtaking everything anyway pouring over the land and sky. The cake itself, still in the shape of darkness, sat on the hillside. What's left, said the cake. It thought in blocks of feeling. It felt the thick darkness all around it. What is left to eat me, to take me in? Darkness did not want to eat more darkness, not especially. Darkness did not care for carrot cake or apple pie. Darkness did not seem interested in a water cake or a cake of money. Only when the cake filled with light did it come over, the darkness circling around the light, devouring the light. 
but the cake kept refilling, as we know. This is the spell of the cake. And the darkness, eating light, and again light, and again light, lifted. I teach a fairy tale class at cool. USC and there's um, a section on Hansel and Gretel stories. And there are these stories that are kind of spinoffs of Hansel and Gretel stories where um, they're kind of also Jack and the Beanstalky mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And there are, so that, that initial part of the story where the kids come in to the, like there's always a human wife with an ogre and the kids come in mm-hmm. and the, she hides them somewhere. And in this version, there's Molly Whoopi and there's some others like Tom Thumb kind of stories. They come in and then they swap crowns and then the ogre either kills. I think in those stories, he kills the ogre children by accident and the human children who you are very much on the side of right. flee. And so I taught it enough times that it started to feel strange to me that we didn't think about what a crisis that would be for that family yeah. and mm-hmm. what it means, I guess, just for the human, just for her, she seemed in such a bind. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to kind of explore her character mm-hmm. yeah. and the aftermath of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that resonated with me a lot of the story is just like life after a tragedy for a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I think the first time reading it too was like, Oh, cool. She's going to go on this journey and like, I don't know, maybe like level up as a person or whatever. Right. right. But I mean, there's just something so real about like, how do you deal with the tragedy and, and understanding that everyone deals with it differently and like, yeah. Mm-hmm, and just really sitting in the discomfort of, you know, her journey. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's, I, I wanted it to be too, that it was really the world of the ogres she's drawn to, despite their kind of frightening nature, it mm-hmm. also feels honest in a way mm-hmm. that the humans don't, you know, they feel sort yeah. of disguised and their, mm-hmm. their frightening aspects are more hidden. And so what, so then it's like, how do you wrestle with that for her too? Then she has to come to terms with what's happened. This mm-hmm. horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. I mean, it, right. It's like, how could how could they return to each other? But it, uh, it says it didn't feel wrong. I think that was about right. I it did not it, feel yeah. wrong, right? Yeah, and yeah. then also just the way it ends with like <laughs> then everybody in the story passes, right? And time keeps going. That it does like this couple like coming back together after you know it's like oh that's so small in the right yeah yeah exactly it's small and there's like something else going on with Mm -hmm. its own drama and contending with the world (laughs) and how do we deal with this darkness and light Mm -hmm. inside all of us and yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, I and I also liked how uh you do mention in the story of like her going back home and they're like what are you doing with this guy (laughs) right and she like hit her children like from them and everything that it does feel like a very human thing to be like oh my god and they got back together like yeah yeah and I don't, it's interesting because it's like there's something because he's so frightening that it seems like he would be abusive, but he's not abusive mm-hmm. to her. <laughs> he just eats everything, you know, like it's yeah. just really like in his nature. He's, he did a horrible thing, but it was within his nature of still, you know, like mm-hmm. it wasn't. Yeah. So I think that was important to me, too, like that that everyone's so frightened of the ogres. But she's like, he's actually a really nice husband, despite this one, you know, yeah. horrible yeah thing. yeah she definitely does have a way to look at it like with the infidelity and everything was she right like that relief of like he's dealing with his needs like yeah he's just a creature that's really driven by instincts. right by appetites yeah yeah, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. yeah no it's true then the infidelity is 
pro- is a problem, but also right. somehow, you know, in yeah. their world mm-hmm. is tolerable. Yeah. 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 And I just like that the story does touch on like all these like, I think, uncomfortable things mm. that people like to be like, la, 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 like infidelity <laughs> doesn't exist or whatever. Um, that like, yeah, it's I like that this main character is such like an outsider to like the human world and the ogre world. Right. That we can kind of like really like look at both of them and be like, oh, this is this is interesting how we choose to live our lives versus like maybe this magical world of ogres. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That she can sort of think about both. And it's it was interesting just reading it. I mean, I haven't read it aloud in a long time. and But just thinking about when she sees the horseman come in and is just sort of thinking about that sense of humanness. And, yeah. And kind um, of being like, ugh. Like, right. Oh, he's yeah. So, so proud. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that visual, I definitely had like that classic like, Hollywood leading man like right. riding up and you're just like uh <laughs> right there's something about wearing your mess on your sleeve so what is the cake and the cloak like also fairy tale symbols yes mm-hmm. yes yeah, so you can track those kind of in different tales this idea mm-hmm. of the replenishing cake or the cloak the invisibility cloak mm-hmm. there's 12 dancing princesses the guy wears the invisibility cloak to go and sort of follow oh, the princesses yeah. to their underground land yes. oh that's right yes mm. now I want to read it again and be like is this creepy (laughs) it is kind of creepy and what are you doing bro right exactly and also like it's such a weird story because it seems like they're having a wonderful time and then they need to be like taken out of their it's really yeah yeah oh wow yeah Yeah, now i really want to read it like with a feminist lens exactly exactly Mm -hmm. uh i'm not too familiar with the replenishing cake as a symbolism so is that something um that like a character needs to like leave in order for them to grow or is that something that you just were thinking of like you know she's still dependent on her husband and is trying to like in my story what Mm -hmm. would I say it it or in just sort of a classic fairy tale kind of I guess yeah were you just exploring the cake like uh, outside of like its normal use in store yeah yeah because it's Mm -hmm. usually pure pragmatism I think where it's Mm -hmm. like fairy tales have their own little logic and the cake is a perfect example Mm -hmm. you need your character to be able to eat but they're not there's no market you know they're not we don't want to deal with scenes of them hunting so we're just giving them a magic cake their food's covered you know done so Mm -hmm. it feels like it it it's the economy of the story mm-hmm. and in this way so it was taking that thing and then just feeling like well yeah what what yeah. happens when these things get created and then mm-hmm. like what do we do with them yeah afterward yeah. what do, what do they do in the world <laughs> yeah. all these what are all our inventions you know, <laughs> know. yeah yeah it's like definitely like the bird crisis of the yeah. world yeah <laughs> yeah it's like the birds aren't flying anymore <laughs> <laughs> i just want to peck that cake <laughs> is there is there anything in your life that like you can connect some of these things to like personally that it would that like i guess fantasy makes it easier to do Uh, and an example i'll give is like it's like uh my in my family we we lost like a a a brother i I lost a brother like very early like Mm. he was a baby and so Mm -hmm. it was almost like a miscarriage but not quite and uh, this story, I felt very connected to this story yeah. on that level because it was like, mm-hmm. you know, um, and basically being very close to my mom. It's so like a mom like losing her kids oh, and just yeah. like the sort of trauma that yeah. she goes through. And that um, you, I'm sure, felt, you know. Totally. After that, right. And also just in my own personal narrative, being more interested in my mom's journey through that than my dad's who was a little, dis- he got distant during yeah. that time. Mm. So I'm wondering, is, yeah. is this particular story for you, is there anything 
that connects you to it in that way? Like, are there elements of it that it's pulling from? It doesn't, you don't have to get super heavy with it, yeah. but I just mean like, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I appreciate hearing that. I mean, I think it's, it's always interesting for me because there, it's not easily trackable. Like there's this way that I, I'll sort of have the things that I experienced and I think I was, um, my husband and I were trying to have a kid in the time before and we, it just took many years and it was a really difficult process. So I think that's in there. Mm-hmm. those losses, miscarriages, like things that were just making the whole thing really hard. And the feeling like, would we ever have children? Would that even happen? Like that, so that's in there. But it's not the only thing in there. Like it, there's this wonderful freedom for me in that I feel too um, inhibited to write about anything directly from my life. Like I just can't. I feel too like, I just feel too self-conscious. Back mm-hmm. to the self-consciousness, mm-hmm. right? But if there's a way that I can just go into a story and not really know what on earth I'm talking about, but know that this was about loss and it was also about a relationship and, but that it's not like one-to-one, like I'm not her and I, and my husband, you know, like it doesn't work like that. It feels more like I am the ogre. It's more like a dream where you're every character in a dream. Mm. I'm the kids. I'm the ogre. I'm the, I'm the wife. I'm the man on the horse. Like I'm all of those people. And so in those ways, I feel like I can kind of track to different things, but it's not it's more the feeling, like the feeling that, and there's something about the cake, the sort of people-pleasing cake I that know. also feels <laughs> resonant to me. Yeah. The poor yeah. cake, but also that the cake figures out a way to like, to just be what it is. You know, like mm-hmm. there's something about that that felt meaningful to me. So it's, so yeah, I can sort of point to that experience of, of thinking about babies a lot, like constantly <laughs> for years and, and it being really, really intense and at times incredibly painful. But, um, but it's not just that too. I think that's what's that that I wouldn't say. Oh, this is a story. This is just a kind of uh, metaphor for that. That it's like going into the story and then just trying to let it play out w- with whatever emotionally I can put in it. Then hopefully it can open up. Then, like you're saying, if you can identify with it from your own experience, that's thrilling for me. Oh yeah, you know that mm-hmm. feels really really good. Stories but shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Campfire.